is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is my co-host Megan Bojarski. Hi everyone. And we are your tour guides through this chronological history of every Disney movie ever. This episode we broaden our focus this season from England to England and Scotland. <laughs> so we've we've talked about Robin Hood, we've talked about Mary Tudor, and now we are talking about Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. And the fact that I didn't try to roll any of those R's is testament to my self-control. <laughs> and so while watching this movie, I had to keep reminding myself that Rob Roy was, in fact, a completely separate historical figure from William Wallace, which is <laughs> also about a rebellion in Scotland, but a, a several hundred years earlier. But, like, the story feels similar enough. And, like, you know, with these monarchs, it's like James, Henry, like, they have these names just keep coming back around. And so it, I like had to pause the movie after I started it, peruse the Wikipedia article just to get a sense of like, <laughs> what time period is this to like orient myself to the story of Rob Roy McGregor, full name Roy, not his last name as I thought going into this movie. <laughs> so I, as you can probably tell, I did not know much, if anything about this movie before watching it. What, what about you, Megan? Yeah, so I didn't really know much either. I know a lot about British history, but that is just a period that kind of, I don't know, has been a blind spot for me. Like, I know vaguely of the Jacobite rebellions and things like that. I've never heard Rob Roy before. Uh, I do find it funny that in the movie, they just call him Rob for the first 60%, and then he's randomly Rob Roy. And they don't actually explain it. They just start saying it. And then that's the name he has in the, like, legends about him. Which would have made more sense if they did that, like, backwards. Like, the legends started calling him Rob Roy and then his supporters did. Kind of like uh, the Robin Hood going back around. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so the name definitely is kind of an interesting point in how he's presented and how the movie does it. Yeah, I'd never really heard... The history of this or heard of this specific movie my follow-up question to you is had you heard of the 1994-1995 movie rob roy with liam neeson and jessica lang no i actually did not know that that movie existed until i was trying to google this movie and a bunch of results for that movie came up and i was like okay mm -hmm. like rob roy is a thing <laughs> um, and it's like, maybe instead of trying to make a Robin Hood or King Arthur movie every couple of years, maybe someone should try to make another Rob Roy movie because his story seems at least as interesting on the surface. It is funny about the name though, because McGregor and like Gregor specifically, like that's a plot point in the movie. Like his mm -hmm. last name for a good chunk of it is like the most important thing. 
And that's one of the interesting things. Like we've talked about before, I always do the research before I watch the movie. And one thing I did particularly was read just kind of like a brief synopsis of his life. And that's apparently a thing that happened on and off repeatedly. Like the McGregor name just kept getting banned. And then they would be like, okay, fine, you can have your name back again. And then they would fight again and it would get banned again. So it's it's kind of a funny thing that that like is one of the most historically accurate things in the movie is just the fact that his name kept getting banned for no good reason. Okay, admittedly, it was like a rebellion against the throne, so maybe a good reason. But you know, still, it depends on it depends on what side you're on, Megan. <laughs> fair, fair. It wasn't without cause. We could say that much. It wasn't unprovoked. Uh, I'll give him that. I think that this was. This was an interesting film to me in the same way that Robin Hood was because number one, we're still getting very like, I would call them sympathetic anti-capitalist sentiments mm -hmm. because that's in the nature of the stories, which of course makes no sense for Walt Disney famed whistleblower on and name giver in the Red Scare. But they've kind of got that on the one side and then on the other side, they're like, Oh no, it's just, the other side is terrible. Like, this isn't because of the political leanings, and this isn't because of evading taxes. It's because he tried to arrest him at his mom's funeral. Which, like, yeah, that was that was a rude move, obviously, but it's no <laughs> red wedding. To be fair, up to this point, we have seen all indications that Walt is very much like, history doesn't mean anything, they're just fun stories. <laughs> They have no political or social bearing on anything that's happening today. They are things that happened in the past that we are dramatizing for all to enjoy. And it's so wrong. That's not how it works. That's not at all how it works. It's less wrong here than in some previous examples from previous seasons, for sure. It is important to note that, and I know you say that there's some disagreement on this point, but as far as I can tell on the few sources I was able to consult, this movie is specifically not based on Sir Walter Scott's 1817 novel, Rob Roy. And it's funny, like, I, I know the name Walter Scott because Ivanhoe has been on my list to read forever since I saw the Wishbone episode about it as a <laughs> child. And I was like, that story seems cool. And I, I know that he also wrote The Lady of the Lake. Did not realize that he had written a Rob Roy novel. Um, and he was a Scott. So, like, it... It makes sense that this would be in his wheelhouse of things to write about. And like he was almost a contemporary of of Rob Roy because Rob Roy, let's see, he died. I mean, I say almost contemporary in the sense that like they live closer to each other in time than they do now. Like Rob Roy died in 1734 and Walter Scott was born in 1771. So it's not like he was writing about a relatively recent historical figure. <laughs> In the, in the grand scale of, of history, not, you know, it's like somebody writing about, like, somebody, m like, my age writing a novel about, like, JFK or something, where it's like, well, like, there, there could be primary sources, like, you're not so far removed from pri primary sources, but um, I don't know how accurate his book is to the actual history. So, the fun thing there is that history, historians don't know what happened, uh, <laughs> is, is the gist of this. Because, and I, I did some digging into Rob Roy, 
The biography, The Highland Rogue, which is mentioned in the Disney movie, came out in 1723, while he was still alive and still doing his thing. And that's so rare. I mean, so many chunks of the Bible are centuries after the mm -hmm. fact, and yet we have Rob Roy being, you know, mythologized within his own lifespan to the extent that the myths around him created the history. So we, we really don't know anything for sure. There's definitely some historical debate. More or less, he was turned into, as the, I believe, second edition of the Highland Rogue called it, he was the Scottish Robin Hood. A lot of historians seem to take, like, particular offense to that and, like, dedicate their career to proving that he was just a garbage human being. Wow. Which... You know, there seems to be some evidence for, but it does make it such a weird case where we talked about with Robin Hood and with the Sword and the Rose, like Disney was explicitly saying, like, we want to do historical research. We're going to Nottingham. We're going to these places. And for this one, they were like, we will go to Scotland, but everything else is whatever we say it is. Because we don't know the history, and frankly, it doesn't matter as much in this story. Yeah, no, I, I think this this story to me feels like it is as grounded in folklore as any Robin Hood story. Mm -hmm. And that, as an American, I can say that that comparison feels directionally right to me. It makes me wonder if those historians who like spend their careers trying to take this guy down, if they're English or Scottish... <laughs> because like I, I just I feel it's like urban. yeah, I, I just feel like those those rivalries, they're like still mad about the Jacob I. It's like they're like we gotta we gotta take this guy down. I do think that that's one of the funniest, although maybe a little bit mean, things that they did with this movie, that there's very clearly like there's the English, there's the Scottish. And then there's just this random German dude who finds it funny when they use phrases like tweaks his nose. And and I just found it hilarious that they really wanted to build in, like, the guy who decided this was not English or Scottish. He was just the dude who happened to be on the throne. Right, which, you know, is, I mean, mostly valid as far as the lineage of the crown. <laughs> yeah. But just to, just to give a brief overview of the man and, and the legend, Rob Roy McGregor, as we've alluded to a couple times already, he and his family fought in the Jacobite Rebellion, which led to one of the times that Clan Gregor was banned in Great Britain. He was likely involved in cattle theft, but overall supposedly did make an honest living and was generally a well-liked person. In 1711, he hid his assets and started taking money for cattle that never arrived. But one of the one of the men he defrauded, the Duke of Montrose, took this as a personal slight and a matter of honor. Thus, a feud began. And then, between the fraud and the rebellions, Rob Roy was a wanted man, but popular and pretty good at righteous indignation. He, you know, he had a good P PR. Very much so. And so this legend sprung up around him. Eventually, he was pardoned by the crown and became a spy against the Jacobites which is is a thing that is maybe questionable and that's that's kind of it like this this whole story i think the i think the overall big problem i had with this movie is that it's sort of anticlimactic 
there's no big like battle or sword fight or even like argument like it really just ends with two guys in a room being like are you done with this i'm kind of done with this and they're like you know what everything's fine and so i feel like i was there there just wasn't that sort of like rousing climax to this story even though like i, I more or less liked it overall so i'll give you that but what i would say is and we've talked about this a few times over the course of season three disney had started making like girl movies and boy movies and I think that arguably this was a girl movie in disguise because the women mm. win. Like right. at the end of the day, the men are like, no, we'll keep fighting until everyone's dead. And Mary or Helen Mary, apparently in most of the folklore, she's just called Mary, but they don't do that in this movie. She's just like, wouldn't you rather survive and have kids and like have a legacy or, or just, die no that's that's what you want you sure i i thought it was i mean number one a good argument um but number two i mean the whole movie there's kind of this war between do we have to fight for everything or can we find peace and largely the women are the ones fighting for peace there's also campbell who's trying to do it but you know, between Rob Roy's mom and then his wife, it's really this argument that maybe there's a way to find peace. And of course, the peace only comes when you can get around the people who refuse to let there be peace. But I think that actually was potentially a really interesting thing to study because it it breaks the hero's narrative. But I know that there's a few authors that have broken down like a heroine's arc. And I wonder if this story would fit that more. Because at the end of the day, the climactic decision, which isn't really shown on screen, is Rob deciding to listen to his wife, not actually any of the battles or negotiations. Yeah, and just from my more than passing, but not much more than passing familiarity with the heroine's journey, like that is much more about like internalized change. Versus the hero's journey is very much change coming from physically traveling and, and going through a thing. And that that does happen on, on the heroine's journey, but the, the change is more like from within. And so like a either gender can go can be a part of either kind of story. Mm -hmm. But I don't I don't know how well this this dovetails with either archetype overall. But I do think that it's interesting and it it makes for a different kind of story. It just, it, it does make me feel that like, if this is a, a, a girl movie in disguise, then the sword in the road is, is definitely a boy movie in disguise. I could see that. And so like, for me, like, I, like I feel like we're slightly on opposite ends of that spectrum where for me, like the sword in the rose is like a fun kind of caper movie with a bunch of sword fights and romance and like costumes and things. And this is, like, I think this is the most serious movie that we've covered so far, in, even including the documentary that uh, from last week. Really? I got a, a degree of, like, energy and jokes being thrown around a lot in this movie, just in a much more subtle way. Mm. Specifically, one of the things that I had pointed out was that you know, The Sword and the Rose is very much kind of a, a somber affair. Like, I... 
I love you with my heart and my soul and a stern voice. And this was all about teasing each other. And, oh, well, somebody else came to ask for a private word with her, but uh, he didn't make it in the door. Just these, these subtle little ways that it felt so much more grounded in community. Like, I could feel the connections between every member of the Gregor clan and those around them. So between, you know, the romance and the fighting, they just seemed to have a dynamic with each other that felt energized to me, rather than just being kind of stern political talk, which it definitely does lean into at a few points. Yeah, and, and so maybe maybe serious isn't, isn't the right word. This feels more closer to how we make movies now. And I think the thing that I enjoyed about The Sword and the Rose is that it has these like outsized characters and like mm -hmm. big emotions and many colors where like even the color palette here is a lot more muted than either Robin Hood or The Sword and the Rose. And so I think to me, like those feel like, you know, classic like Hollywood adventure type movies and you know so does Treasure Island that kind of fits in with that and this feels like I said I, when I'm more serious but maybe it's just more similar to modern day approaches where you know there is humor and romance and everything but everything is a little more like the colors are more muted there is a it's more grounded maybe grounded is 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 the word I'm actually looking for I could see that I think this is going to be an interesting one to talk about because I do feel like we we were kind of at odds with The Sword and the Rose and we have reversed on this. I I was trying to kind of put this in the lineup, for myself at least, of the British movies. And I think that, you know, as, as much as I might be arguing for, you know, strong-willed women, Treasure Island is still probably my favorite despite having no women. Sometimes none is better than poorly, like poorly yes. portrayed women, which is a, is is a very very low bar. I want to be clear, but th sometimes there's valor in like let's not even attempt. <laughs> that's that's a fair point, but that's kind of an outlier. And then I think for me, I saw this as kind of between Robin Hood and the Sword and the Rose, that it kind of has the energy and the bickering of Robin Hood with kind of the political intrigue of The Sword and the Rose. But it sounds like you more think that The Sword and the Rose is closer to Robin Hood than this one is. Is that kind of your thought? Yeah, like I would put Robin Hood in, in the middle of, uh, of these three, where like The Sword and the Rose is more heightened. Like I said, the characters are, to me, feel even larger than life. And this feels more grounded than than Robin Hood does, and and maybe that's that partially is the source material because I'm so used, to, like I've seen so many different versions of Robin Hood, in, including the animated Disney version, <laughs> that like right. I just know that story really well, and so like I'm always watching it with a like, oh, this is similar to the Disney one, this is similar to Errol Flynn, this is similar to Kevin Costner, and so being less familiar with this and the Sword in the Rose, maybe that's why they end up on sort of opposite sides of of that for me. And and like I said, I, I enjoyed this movie. I thought that, you know, when it did get to the dry political stuff, it really like came to a halt for me a couple times, but 
but but I like the I like the family stuff. I like the character dynamics. I liked the. I think the thing I like the most about this movie is the way it makes the clan feel like a community. And I, I think you really, you know, hit the nail on the head there. Season three has been wacky for us because there's kind of the three lines of the company. There's the animated movies, the live action British, and then the documentaries. I mean, I suppose you could say there's some interest in somewhat of historical accuracy, but it's much more kind of grounded in the British films and a tiny bit of comic humor. I will say I absolutely laughed it out loud at the ridiculous effect of Rob going over the waterfall. And then when he threw the boulder down at the people chasing him, because those felt very cartoony to me. Mm -hmm. But overall, it it's just so interesting to see these different lines of the company and how they're flowing together. Because, of course, this one is maybe not the best example, but is the final example in many ways of this British run. September 1952, which was just like, Three months after Robin Hood came out, Disney announced that Richard Todd would star in a film about Rob Roy. This was specifically due to the success of Robin Hood. They had talked about making a similar movie with Richard Todd as King Arthur. I mean, it was really setting up this, like, historical British melodrama, like, studio of sorts. And unfortunately, as we'll talk about later, it was not as successful as they wanted it to be. It's an interesting example of kind of where all of these British films kind of rolled into, with some of the comedy of one and the history of the others, and even some of the animation and some of the comedic setups of the documentaries and the animated versions. It's been really interesting because, you know, when I originally titled the season Adventures in Literature, I... I didn't actually realize that all of the literature is British in this season. <laughs> yeah. British mania. Yeah. And so it is, it is really interesting to sort of see that progression. And I don't necessarily think that the animated films and live action films this season are like in dialogue with each other much at all, because they very much feel like completely other than Bobby Driscoll in Treasure Island, they really just feel like completely separate tracks of the company. And like one's a, one's literally across an ocean and a continent from the other. But I do think it's interesting thinking about them all together and sort of the, this is really like Disney taking on like, all right, now we've moved from, you know, we talked about way, way back how the silly symphonies and things were like the three little pigs, which is like, you know, a fable you know, very simple story, and then we get Snow White, and we're get we're doing fairy tales, which are more complex. And then now this season, it's really all about like we're going to adapt these famous novels of British literature, and so you can see like they're taking on more and more complex narratives. But like even this movie is like you know barely eighty minutes. I like that these movies are short for one because it makes them very easy to watch. But it's just mm -hmm. it is interesting. That, like, there could be so much... Like, you could easily make a three-hour Rob Roy movie, it feels like. You know, just the way that you could, like, a Robin Hood movie. Or, like, The Sword and the Rose. They turned, you know, the Tudors into a whole a whole show that ran for several seasons. So, like, it's just... 
it's interesting to think about the choices in the adaptation of like how we're paring down these stories to like their bare elements. Like I said, I, I enjoy this movie. I, I think it's interesting and maybe it's for the best that they didn't make a live action King Arthur movie. Like I I don't know how I don't know how that would have gone because there's so much to that to that story. And I think, you know, the the version that they did ultimately ultimately make the sword in the stone like is really cool because it focuses on Arthur as a child, which is like, mm-hmm. or young, a young adolescent at least, which is like very unusual, but it makes that movie feel like unique and special among all of the various Arthur movies that have been, been made since time immemorial. As much as it's kind of starting to develop the Disney formula among various different mediums, I think what we are seeing is a good bit of experimentation there are maybe some stories that that works with and stories it doesn't work with. But specifically with you mentioning like Sword in the Stone talks about Arthur as a child. I'm thinking back on this period and realizing that a lot of what they ended up doing was actually stories about parenthood. And kind of seeing that grow more and more, whether we're talking about the horrible step parenthood in, you know, Cinderella or Wendy being a mother to all of the boys, or dealing with the fact that we had Robin Hood and seeing his father die, and Rob Roy and his relationship with his mother, that we're really getting these stories of, like, adolescents learning to be adults in a lot of ways. I don't think that they were necessarily ready for that story with King Arthur. I think at this point they were really preferring, like, the epic version Uh, We Mm -hmm. want to see, you know, Camelot at its height, whereas maybe some of these other figures, we can get that, you know, parent-child dynamic. I don't know that we needed yet another version of King Arthur's parents getting gunned down in an alley. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I will grant you that we don't need to see Spider-Man failing to save Uncle Ben uh, yet again. Although, hey, maybe Spider-Man and Batman can learn a thing or two from 50s-era Disney. I do wonder, and this is somewhat off-topic, but somewhat not. So, like I said, I'm starting to see this thread of losing your parents and becoming an adult. And I just looked it up. Disney's children were in their late teens, early 20s around Mm. this time period. So they're going into the period where maybe they're not listening to mom and dad anymore. We see Robin Hood becomes a rebel to honor his father's cause. And we see Rob Roy gives up his fighting instincts to honor his mother's dying words. And I'm I'm just wondering if, if there was something going on with Walt behind the scenes. I know he was less involved in a lot of these, but if if Walt, you know, had his own interpretation of what a child owed to their parent as they became an adult. I think that's super interesting. I also do feel like this is sort of an adolescence for the studio as a whole, because, you know, we're coming out of this era where if not for World War II, their earlier movies might have made more money, but if also not for World War II, the studio might have gone bankrupt completely. So, like, we're coming out of that you know, then we have like the package era that we talked through last season, where it was a, a lot of like whatever we can get together and put out there that we think might be interesting. And then we have like Ichabod and Toad at the end of that as sort of like the transition period of like 
adapting literature into these stories and it and you know with the themes of adolescence baked in it does feel like this is the studio trying to grow up and at the very least they are certainly you know experimenting with like let's try to do live action movies let's keep doing animated movies that are maybe more ambitious in what they're trying to tackle than anything during the package era let's you know make feature length documentaries and get in a fight with our distributor because they don't want they don't think people will come to see them and then we're on the horizon of you know television and and Disneyland like that's going to be coming at the beginning of our next season and so you know it really does feel like the the studio is 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 evolving into what it eventually becomes like once you get television and theme parks outside of like the cruise line that they started in the 90s that is like apparently wildly successful you know you have a lot of the pieces of the you know cornerstones of the disney brand sort of all coming into place by the end of the 50s except the princesses because that hadn't been fully solidified quite yet but right you know they're, they're getting there they had two at least so we, we do have the three classics by the end of the 50s. So uh, you know what? I retract my comment. That's that's a good grounds. Unfortunately, they're not going to you know do anything with it again until the late 80s and 90s, but they tried. They're there, as uh, any studio exec today would say. They're, they're, it was untapped IP, just, you know, <laughs> with full potential. And then, of course, Roy is like, it doesn't make any sense. None of these princes would would, would know each other. And then Eisner's like, you know how many uh, toys we're going to sell? Come on. And they all agree that we shouldn't pay the workers. Yeah, look, if they could agree on one thing. What a wonderful thing for them to agree on. The magic of Disney. As we alluded to earlier, even though he wasn't super involved in this stuff, Walt was still very much on board with Rob Roy as a project. There's a 1953 quote from Walt Disney that says, quote, I like history. It's universal. I'm going to edit that and say it European history is universal if you are a white person whose ancestors come from Europe. Walt goes on, subjects like Robin Hood and the Tudors appeal to everyone. Costumes don't date, you know. I can release these films over and over again and they won't get the kind of laugh you get from modern subjects made 10 years back. And that, I think, is something I did not think about and is extremely fascinating to me that... Because we normally think of Walt as like the creative guy and Roy as the like dollars and cents numbers person. So whenever you hear a business quote from Walt, it really it, it really stands out. And the fact that they were already making money re-releasing their old movies, the older animated movies into theaters. And that that was part of the business model that they were trying to build, I think is super interesting and happening a little bit earlier than I expected personally. I think this is probably him thinking with the television on the horizon. Because Walt, as you'll read in his biographies, Walt was intrigued by television long before he got into it. And I think he was starting to see the reissuing potential, uh, especially there. Because with movies, for the most part, it came out and then it was done and there hadn't been that many that had been reissued at that point. But television, you could have a rerun on over and over again, and people would still watch them. So I do wonder if that was part of his uh, perspective on it. Seeing, I don't know, I Love Lucy reruns, just still kind of hitting the nail on the head, but going, 
You know, in five years, it's not going to be quite as funny, but what if I said it back in, like, somewhere between 1300 and 1750 in, you know, the UK? Because apparently that is the timeless era. Right. TV, because we've mentioned a lot of times that this season, a lot of these movies were featured very early on in the life of the Disneyland TV show as like an episode or, or cut down to an episode or played over two episodes or something. It is really interesting. And, and it's, it's sort of nice to, it feels like it's been a little bit since we checked in with like Disney, the business. And so I really like this Walt quote and just getting, getting his insight on why all these projects. We started the British project with, they have our money. We want our money. And it did to some extent turn into an artistic and business merger for Walt. I can play with things like history. I can play with, you know, these grand universal themes, but I can also do it in a way that not only gets me the World War II money, but that maybe can kind of launch the company for the next 10 years. And it gives me an excuse to leave the country anytime we put out a movie that I'm not sure about. He was definitely a fan of doing that. Of course, by this point, when we're talking production details, a lot of things were pretty much set up as they had been for years. So we see it's produced by Purse Pierce, who he had threatened a few years back, make this a good movie or your career is over. Clearly, it was a good enough movie that he thinks he should stay on. Uh, it was written by Lawrence Edward Watkin, again, as had been the previous British live action projects. As we'll talk in a little bit, much of the cast is the same that had always been in it. And really the only changed feature was that Walt couldn't get Can Anakin as the director. So his studio essentially kept loaning him to Disney and eventually said, enough of that, we want our Anakin money. And so he ended up working with Harold French, who I think did a pretty good job capturing the same energy as Ken Anakin was able to do. I think this is the only movie of his that I've actually seen, but his career goes back to 1937. And this is, he only directed three more movies after this, but he had a pretty, you know, a pretty long and regu regular career. Like it, it seems like every, you know, even during the war, every year or two, he was putting out at least one movie, if not multiple movies under his name, which is you know, very common for the sort of studio system that was in place at the time. But he was a well-established person. Like he was not a, you know, a, a newcomer. One quote from him that I actually just really like, and I, I do want to ask you if you agree with this, because we've talked about what this movie is and what it isn't for each of us. So where Anakin was frequently talking about like, the historical details and how do we counter the history with the romance. French refers to Rob Roy, the Highland rogue, as, quote, a Western with kilts. And I'm not sure I agree with him. I can see where he's coming from, but I think you'd have to be British to say that. Not <laughs> it, because, like, being Americans, like, the Western as a genre, no matter how many Westerns you've actually seen, I feel like the Western as a genre is just so endemic to like our sensibilities, but like there, there are some, there are some similarities thematically in that you have this sort of like folk hero who's outside the law, taking the law into his own hands, being kind of a, a, 
a rebel against authority and standing up for the, the common man in a very ind- rugged and individualistic way. So I, I can I can see where that's coming from. It's not it's not quite there in terms of what I would think of as like a, even what I would imagine a Western in kilts to be. This is still a little bit closer to costume drama with with occasional battles than it is like actual Western. I think you could take the first 20 minutes and you might be able to argue Western in kilt. Yeah. You know, you've got the battle, pursuing the girl and escaping from the law. Those work. The more it turns into a political drama, I think the less it works for that. But I think that kind of a major thing for me is that so often Westerns were about the loner, but somebody who is part of the normal society, and I'm putting that in air quotes, interacting with the exotic other, which was so often indigenous people in Westerns. And there's definitely an element of exoticization going on with the Scots, that, you know, they're just these wild people and their dances are fun and crazy and spirited. Westerns very, very rarely are from the perspective of the exotic other. Right. Whereas I would say that this movie is. There's very little representation of the English here. It's pretty much all the Scots just rebelling and doing what they want and kind of mocking the English whenever they get in their way. That framing especially really takes it further away from the Western itself. You know, especially the American Westerns in the 50s are very much about you know, there's a lot there's a lot more focus on law and order and things and good guys having silver stars on the on their vests. So I yeah, I, I don't quite agree. But the, I mean, the first 20 minutes, I, I'd be pretty convinced. And then it, it kind of goes back and, you know, ends up just being a very British tale to me. <laughs> but I, I did like the that opening shot of all the soldiers marching through the Scottish Highlands is very impressive. One of the fun facts of this that's actually shown on the screen, and then Richard Todd wrote about it in his autobiography, Caught in the Act, is that the vast majority of the extras for the soldiers were played by soldiers of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, who had just come back from the Korean War, uh, which was such an interesting way to play it, that instead of saying, oh, let's just get random actors and dress them up, they they actually went with Scottish, you know, military forces to be the majority of the non-main cast. I am going to immediately apologize for however inaccurate the statement actually is. But my understanding is that the Highlanders today still wear, still occasionally wear a version of the sort of traditional Scottish uniform with the kilt and everything. So like, this probably wasn't all that unfamiliar to them, even though, you know, it it's like 200 years before when this was being made, you know, there is still, there is the lineage there in terms of the Highlanders is still that strong. And so I, I do think it's, it's cool that they were able to use like actual so- soldiers to portray the soldiers. So the soldiers, all these, all these extras as soldiers received their normal pay of seven shillings a day. The war office, of course, got their 25 shillings a day um, in return. And then uh, Richard, Richard Todd uh, made more than 15,000 pounds. 
starring in this movie. And I, I will just note that the name of his memoir autobiography is is perfect. No notes on Caught in the Act. <laughs> Filming for this did take place in Scotland. For the exteriors, it's pretty obvious that they're on, you know, that they're on location. There's some use of like blue screen, like matte paintings and things in, in the backgrounds. And then the studio filming was at Elstree Studios, which is a very, you know, storied British studio. That's where they shot the first Star Wars movie. It was at Elstree later on. Kinlockard was one prominent location. And it, this was also the last Disney film shot at Denim Studios, because uh, this is sort of the last of the, like, we need to spend the money earned in Britain in Britain after the war. This is sort of the last of those productions. And it also means, not that we won't hear from these people again, but my understanding is that for this sort of cast of players, this is like the last one where they're all involved. We've got some very familiar names here. So obviously, Richard Todd is Rob Roy McGregor. He was our Robin Hood and our Charles Brandon. And he was basically the only thing that they knew about the movie from the get-go that he was going to be in it from as soon as Robin Hood did well. And if I remember correctly, he never did another Disney project. So he was like the head of all things British Disney, and then just moved on, found another uh, place to go from there. Glynis Johns returns uh, here playing Helen Mary McPherson McGregor. You know, we previously saw her as Mary Tudor in The Sword and the Rose a few weeks ago. Obviously, she is a name that will certainly come back around uh, again in the future. We also have James Robertson Justice as John Campbell, the second Duke of Argyle. He played Little John in Robin Hood and Henry VIII in The Sword and the Rose. Michael Goff returns as the Duke of Montrose. He was previously the Duke of Buckingham in The Sword and the Rose. And we also have Finlay Curry as Hamish McPherson who was previously uh, Billy Bones in Treasure Island. And so, again, there's a lot of the sort of cast of players being recombined into very similar but slightly different roles and, you know, in this case, slightly different accents. Yeah, I was interested to see how they played with the accents. I will say Glynis Johns in The Sword and the Rose because it was such a, like, proper, uptight, snooty accent and though she doesn't change it that much for this, she feels much less annoying to me. Many people disagree with me. I know that the Sword in the Rose accent is much more similar to what she does with Mary Poppins. Some of the other actors go full Scottish, others do not. But it does give us the opportunity to see them playing mostly similar roles, mostly for the last time. Glennis Johns, of course, goes on to Mary Poppins. And then Finley Curry is actually going to be in Kidnapped, which came out in 1960 and was the next, if I remember correctly, the next film that was actually like done in the UK. It'll be a bit of American productions for a while. And then occasionally there'll be some British ones, as we, as we will discover in future episodes. I just think for the record, I would rather have an accurate accent than no accent, but I'd rather or like... I'd rather have the actor talk in their normal voice than have a bad accent. But mm -hmm. I'd still rather have a good accent over like a regular speaking voice. I think that's fair. And then, you know, just an anecdote from set. Richard Todd apparently tore ligaments uh, while filming one of the battle scenes. In his book, he says it's that he stepped into a rabbit hole, which I think 
understandably would be uh, a, a thing that you could do to tear ligaments because that would be very surprising if you're in the middle of filming a battle. You know, of course, no one knows for sure, but that's his version, at least. I believe it. My uncle actually broke his leg in half while hiding Easter eggs for my cousins and I because he stepped into a hole and he wasn't even running from a bunch of armed soldiers and cavalry. So I I think that's definitely a place to get injured. But if I remember correctly, didn't he also get injured in, I think, Robin Hood? Like he, he was flung from a horse or something? This just a thing. They stopped casting him because he keeps getting hurt every time. He became an insurance liability, and <laughs> you know I can't imagine Walt ever thought favorably about insurance. And then moving through the the release of the movie, uh, so this was actually the last Disney film released through RKO, which we will talk about more about what who is releasing these movies uh, when we pick up next season. I think. It had its uh, premiere at the Royal Command Performance Film Gala uh, on the 26th of October, 1953, uh, which is at the Odeon Leicester Square in London, which is still a movie theater to this day. Queen Elizabeth was there. So it came out, like we said, October of 1953 in the UK, and then February of 1954 here in the US. It was not as successful as the previous live-action films. So Treasure Island and Robin Hood were far more successful there's sort of a big drop off for the sword and the rose and for rob roy and i think i think that kind of makes sense like megan you said that treasure island was probably the best of these uh that we've seen so far and i would definitely agree and i think with the cultural legacy of the long john silver voice i think you know i think that i think that's still true that treasure island just it has something that these others are are lacking somehow Yeah, I think that as much as, you know, we can keep going back to you can't top pigs with pigs, the studio tried. They wouldn't call them sequels at this point. Gotta wait another 50 years before they become obsessed with sequels. But they do keep trying the same formula, and I do think that there's definitely some diminishing returns by this point. And I I have a feeling that more or less they went, okay, if it makes good money, we'll keep doing it, but if not... We got all our money out of Britain, let's cut and run, which seems to be basically what they did. Yeah, and and I, you know, again, I think overall on the balance, these movies are actually a little bit better than I was expecting. On the whole, like I was pleasantly surprised by the ones I hadn't seen, which were Robin Hood, Sword of the Rose, and this. But it also makes sense that it would be kind of diminishing returns and not quite connecting. Because again, like I don't I feel like Treasure Island, the book, was probably better known than you know, The Sword and the Rose, or Rob Roy. One of my fun facts that we, we actually didn't get a chance to mention earlier, we, I, I would agree that Treasure Island is more well-known. But Treasure Island's author, Robert Louis Stevenson, actually said that Sir Walter Scott's book, Rob Roy, was the best novel of all time. So, you know, if you go far enough into it, they all circle back around to each other. I would say that having read both Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I don't know that Robert Louis Stevens is someone that I necessarily would trust as a literary critic. Like maybe he, maybe he is a better critic than he was a writer, but neither of those books are particularly great in my mind. They have great, they have great stories. And I think there's a reason why like 
people will still watch movies based on his things, but like, you know, you don't read Treasure Island in like English class. But I mean, Sir Walter Scott has a great reputation. And like I said, Ivanhoe has been on my list of books I eventually want to read since I was a small child who was really into watching Wishbone. <laughs> so, you know, maybe someday I will read Rob Roy and I'll, if that happens, I will certainly apologize to Robert Louis Stevenson <laughs> if, if, if it turns out to be the best novel. When it comes to Rob Roy as a concept, we do have, of course, Robert Louis Stevenson's word. But there were also, I think, two Rob Roy movies that had actually come out before this. There's definitely a silent film version, and I think there was one other. But then it its legacy somewhat seems to to fade away. I think that, and granted, we are we are two Americans, so correct us if we're wrong, people of the UK. But I would say that whether you're talking the UK or the US, Robin Hood is still a thousand percent known. And Rob Roy is not really a name that everybody's expected to know. And unfortunately, that may be in part because this Disney movie is not a necessary part of the canon. It's very possible. I do also think that like Robin Hood has a lot going for him just with like he has an iconic outfit and an <laughs> iconic weapon. You know, like you put on a, a green shirt and one of those little like pointed caps. I, I don't know what they're called. Uh, and you have a bow and arrow, and you're like, oh, you're in a Robin Hood costume. Like, I, I do think that, like, as good of at PR as Rob Roy was during his time, I feel like that's the missing element that would, like, elevate him to iconic status. Okay, but, like, he's got the kilt, and I'm sure if you go deep enough, you'll find what the clan's, you know, fabric pattern was and figure out all the details there. Argyle became popular enough. <laughs> I don't disagree, but I do think when it comes to iconography, simple is better. Like you put a fox in that, that Robin Hood outfit and you're like, that's a ro <laughs> that, that's Robin Hood. I don't know why he's a fox right now, but that is certainly Robin Hood. That's true. That's true. It, it's funny that like after Braveheart was like wildly successful that nobody was like, we're going to make a, well, no, maybe that is what happened actually. Now that I think about it, because when is Braveheart? 1995. So it was the same time. Oh, yeah. So someone was like, oh, Braveheart's in production. We should make a Rob Roy movie to, you know, as, as like the the deep impact Armageddon of Scottish historical hi historical legend movies go. I mean, to be fair, it had a pretty great cast. But unfortunately, I, I don't think it became the the other Braveheart. To be fair, I would much rather watch this than actual Braveheart because I think it's like three hours long yeah Braveheart's pretty long it has Mel Gibson it's fine <laughs> now I'm looking I'm like on the the 1995 Rob Roy Wikipedia article and like okay there's but a led to all the Scottish films well it, it it says see also Braveheart but Braveheart's not mentioned in like the production section at all okay let me look up the Braveheart page I mean, to be fair, they're separated by a few hundred years of, of history, but if being American doesn't give us the right to do anything, it certainly gives us the right to compress European history into a small time period. <laughs> yeah, while you're looking that up, this 1995 Rob Roy movie was uh, directed by Michael Canton-Jones, who was himself a Scottish director. He also directed Doc Hollywood, the um, 
Michael J. Fox movie. But in in this Rob Roy, Liam Neeson stars as Rob Roy. So they cast a Northern Irish man as a Scotsman, which feels controversial, but also has Jessica Lange, John Hurt, Tim Roth, uh, Eric Saltz, uh, and Brian Cox. So it has quite the quite the cast to it. You know, I'm not finding any connection between the two movies other than the fact that they list each other on their Wikipedia pages. Weird. All right, now I gotta see if this Ooh. movie is like... Okay, found one connection. So originally, the producer of Braveheart, Alan Ladd Jr., had it at MGM. He, they eventually ended up taking it to Paramount, but the 1995 version of Rob Roy was distributed by MGM. So I guess MGM lost Braveheart and thus had to create Rob Roy. Is that what's happening here? Maybe. I mean, it's certainly possible. By the way, Alan Ladd not only won uh, an Oscar for producing Braveheart, but he was also the one who approved the production of the original Star Wars movie. So there's another random Star Wars connection for you just because there's too much information about Star Wars in my brain. And sometimes it is relevant on this podcast. Okay, everybody. I know that we said this was going to be a simple episode, but apparently the important thing to know is that Rob Roy... Braveheart and Star Wars are all connected. There's a big conspiracy and MGM is hiding it from us. <laughs> Continuing on, you know, after this movie comes out, it then is broadcast on the Disneyland show uh, in October of 1956 across two episodes. It was released on VHS in 1985. It is not currently streaming on Disney Plus for reasons that I don't fully understand, but, you know, it's very easy to, to rent it digitally through Apple or Amazon or, you know, whatever your preferred digital movie rental place is. But this was not one that I had heard of at all before before putting together the list for this podcast. But it's been, it's been really interesting going through these British movies. And like I said, I thought this was fun and, and like, totally fine. To me, The Sword in the Rose is just more fun, and so I prefer it, but, you know, they're they're roughly all the same in quality, uh, this and Robin Hood and Sword in the Rose. I'm looking at all of these movies, and I'm finding wild connections on the fly here. I brought up earlier the parenthood and going into adulthood of it all. I'm also wanting to call out the fact that so many of the movies from this time period, except The Sword in the Rose really had to do with storytelling and how a legend becomes a legend. I mean, that was a big thing in Peter Pan, if we can connect with the animated movies. The reason that Peter came and took Wendy and was interested in her to begin with is because she was telling stories about him. Robin Hood, we saw the um, bard going around and singing stories and changing people's minds through them. Rob Roy, as we said, is the PR master. And between his own side of things and the stories being told about him on the streets of London, it became this interesting thing where a legend maybe doesn't exist because they did something great, but because somebody told about their grand deeds. 
And I just don't feel like Charles Brandon really had anybody telling his story. I think that's totally fair. And, you know, it's funny because I, I think of Mary Tudor as the main character of that movie, rightly or wrongly. And but no, I, I, I think that is I think that is a connection. And I do think that, again, like because we saw we've seen on the animated side during the package films like Disney making, you know, Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill and if I'm going to very oversimplify things, you know, there's not, I can see the connect, the lineage sort of between a Robin Hood, a Rob Roy, a Pecos Bill, a Johnny Appleseed in terms of that, that sort of folk hero, folk legend of like, maybe, maybe not so much Pecos Bill, but like, I know for a fact, Johnny Appleseed, Robin Hood, and Rob Roy were all actual historical people. Mm-hmm. how their deeds are portrayed and interpreted and all that kind of stuff aside, you know, there is a, those were real historical people that existed uh, who then became, you know, folk heroes in their own right. Disney is, is making them characters, taking them out of history and making them something other than. And now, you know, just because of your wonderful gift to me and because I'm 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 connecting dots whether they are there or not. In the early animated movies, it was all about the storybook and we've got to open the story and tell the tale and Jiminy Cricket is telling the tale of Pinocchio. And you know, we've got all of this storytelling information going on. The the title alone of this movie we call it Rob Roy because that's easier, and the later movie was Rob Roy, but the full title is Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue, and the Highland Rogue was the name of the biography written about him in his own lifetime. So all, all Disney is doing is telling stories about telling stories, I guess, which I appreciate the meta-textuality of that back in the 1950s. I swear this is this is actually on topic and a response to what you just said. But I recently rewatched The Emperor's New Groove because it had been a while since I've seen it. And Love it. that movie literally opens with a let me tell you how I got here. Mm-hmm. And so like that just made me think of like Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio be like if that opened like in the whale and he's like, Let me tell you how we got here. And so, like, I, I do think that it is sort of, you know, the way that we tell these stories uh, has been constantly evolving and, like, slightly changing and trends come in and out since then. But, you know, I do think of Walt Disney specifically as a storyteller. You know, we, go, we always go back to that story of him, you know, spending hours recounting the story of Snow White to the animators and really getting them sold in the idea of a feature length uh, animated film. You know, I think of what separates Disneyland and, and Disney theme parks from other theme parks is like the storytelling involved and, you know, the, the immersion that you get from the details that are, you know, not just on the rides, but in the, in the lands that are themed and, and, you know, all that stuff kind of carries through. And, you know, I do think that, if there is anything that we can take away from Disney as both a sort of artistic and business endeavor, it's that like story is what's important. Like that's why people keep coming back to these movies. And that's why people watch movies that have been out for almost a hundred years still today, because the stories still resonate. 
Ryan, you've had some personal experience with the way that these stories resonate and merge with the business world. So unless you have more to say about Rob Roy, why don't you tell me and, of course, our listeners about your experience going to Disney World? Yeah, yeah. So as of this recording, uh, I am recently back from a trip to Disney World. I uh, Rosalie, who did the artwork for the show and uh, that I work with at Movie John, she was turning 40 and that's what she wanted to do for her 40th birthday. And so myself and uh, my wife and Rosalie and a couple of friends, like we all kind of went down there or, or met up there and spent a bunch of days, you know, hanging out, doing the theme parks. And so I wanted to sort of like give a little bit of a, a, a trip report, not in the sense of like, here's where I ate and here's the rides that I, you know, all that kind of stuff. Not so much like travel advice, although, you know, if you are a listener of the show and you are planning a trip to, to Disney World, feel free to reach out. I, uh, I am the, I'm the trip planner. I'm the one organizing all of the like fast passes and reservations and things for everybody. But I, I just wanted to talk more about like what what from Disney history is still being represented in the parks or what did I see a lot of? And so like thinking about the characters in the park and especially a lot of the merchandise that's that's available right now, I was actually kind of surprised how much Coco and Encanto merchandise there was. You know, Encanto obviously also like, I think only the third Disney movie that had a song that hit the Billboard 100 because we don't talk about Bruno runaway hit um absolutely higher on that chart that because let it go did not crack the billboard 100 apparently that is wild to think about with how ubiquitous that became and so there's a lot of merchandise for Encanto uh which is still pretty recent and a lot a lot for Coco which maybe part of that is the time of year it being October and uh you know the day of the dead coming up and at the Mexico area of Epcot there's there's a ton of stuff but you know Walt Disney World being in Florida also does have a a lot of a lot of visitors from Central and South America as well as Latinx visitors from the U.S. and other places as well and so you know I think between those two they're they're sort of trying to tap into you know from the business side they're trying to make money off of those people by selling the things that they think they will like but they are at least leaning into the representation that they have in the movies themselves. So a lot of stuff for uh, like Moana, very, very popular. There's a new like water-based experience that like you kind of walk through and apparently the water will react to like your, your hands and, you know, moving around will make the water uh, like, you know, shoot out of different places and other places or whatever. And that's all themed around Moana. Uh, obviously Frozen, still a big deal. And then all the Pixar stuff, you know, that I feel like has moved into classic status now. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, Nemo and The Incredibles and obviously anything Toy Story related are all very pretty prominent around the park. I was actually surprised to see Raya from Raya and the Last Dragon on a float in a parade because I I often forget that that movie exists. So it's, it's nice that the theme park has not uh, at the mm-hmm. very least. And then... Uh, there's more appearances of Mary Poppins and Alice than I expected. Uh, we went to the Halloween party at the Magic Kingdom, and they have like part of the appeal of going is that they have characters there that are not usually available to like meet and take pictures with. So like if you wanted to wait in a two plus hour line, you could meet Jack and Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. 
which which we did not do, but we did wait in a much shorter line to meet. We actually met Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and it was the line was like you know they because the I'm, I'm going to phrase this in a way not to like ruin the magic, but the characters get a break after every like 20 minutes, mm-hmm. so they were swapping back and forth between the Queen of Hearts and the Tweedles. So when we got to the front of that line, it, it was the Tweedles, but it was really fun meeting them because they did like the handshake and like they were like jumping around and like very energetic, uh, which was really fun. So there were there was a lot of Alice, and then like there's a lot of uh, I saw Mary Poppins a few times, and even a uh, a Bert with her in one of the the parades, which was really fun. And then there is other than. You could meet and greet the Ariel from the recent live-action movie in Hollywood Studios. There was not hide nor hair of any of the live-action remakes, and it just it just reinforced to me that like even Disney just sees these as sort of a brand exercise, <laughs> and like you know, because with Pirates of the Caribbean, there's still like Jack Sparrow stuff all over the pirate the whole pirate area that's in like Magic Kingdom, but like. There's nothing about any, like, you know, anything Beauty and the Beast is the animated version. You know, you go to Gaston's Tavern and there's a big statue outside and it's the animated Gaston. And if you see Gaston in the villains portion of the Halloween parade, it's that Gaston. Corolla de Vil looks like the Corolla de Vil from the animated 101 Dalmatians and not like Glenn Close or Emma Stone. So, like, it... It kind of just reinforced to me that, like, oh yeah, like the animated stuff is "quote unquote" the real, like the real thing that like Disney still holds as like the the text. So I thought I thought that was interesting. And then we watched Fantasmic, which has been running pretty consistently, I think, since like 1997 or 1998. The premise of Fantasmic is that Mickey is having a dream, and then I believe it's Maleficent shows up. And decides to make his dream a nightmare and like conjures mm. all the villains. And then like Mickey brings in a bunch of the heroes, like Aladdin shows up and Elsa shows up. And, you know, there's like a loose storyline all where everybody gets like this like moment of like, you know, fireworks or water, di- water effects or whatever. And like, it's, it's it, I mean, it's a, it's a really good production, but it's interesting that because that show was developed in the nineties, like Pocahontas is still a big part of it. Aladdin is still a big part of it. And those were characters that you didn't see as much elsewhere in the park, which is kind of interesting. So it's just it's just weird to see how like Disney trying to, you know, like like the like Mickey and like Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Daisy, Pluto and Goofy and Chip and Dale are like kind of ubiquitous. But it's interesting to see Disney sort of trying to balance the different eras of their movies to try to hit different demographics. And I feel like Disney hasn't quite leaned all the way into marketing to millennials with disposable income, at least in the parks themselves by like, they haven't gone like full nineties nostalgia just yet. That's somewhat comforting. I was a little bit heart harmed. I I was a little bit hurt. When uh, American Girls uh, dolls decided that their newest historical figure would be from the 1990s, I would prefer that we not define it that way. Yeah, whenever one of these kids on TikTok is like, oh, this is music from like the late 1900s, it just, no, that is upsetting to me and personally offensive. Um, that, is, that is my culture. <laughs> so it, it was just interesting, kind of, like I said, seeing how much of like the new, new stuff 
is incorporated. Like there was a lot of merch for Elemental, but there wasn't like I didn't see the characters from Elemental like walking around or anything. But it's kind of interesting to see what's been sort of like like I feel like Frozen has already been elevated to the level of like canonical classic Disney movie. And like mm-hmm. maybe Encanto's on the way there. Moana is probably on the way there, but not quite there yet. You know, and those will eventually stand alongside things like Beauty and the Beast and the Little Mermaid. And you know, it 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 feels like Disney themselves has like unofficial tiers of mm-hmm. like what their big movies are. And then like that allows them to sort of, like I said, market to multiple generations at a time. The other thing I just noticed is a trend that there's a lot of like men wearing Marvel or Star Wars shirts when the rest of their family is decked out in like Mickey or, you know, animated movie shirts. And I think I was like, oh, yeah, that this is why they bought Marvel and Star Wars, because now they do have, you know, in the in the most stereotypical gender stereotypical sense, they have the whole family captured and like little kids, you would see little kids dressed in Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars, just like of all ages and demo- of you know types and everything. Like you would just see kids kind of dressed as whatever. There were I'm not going to get into the whole like Epcot drinking around the world shirts and stuff, but I saw way too many dads and like I'll say older brothers wearing like princess protection shirts, where like and it's just. The first time I saw one many years ago, I was like, oh, that's like kind of cute and clever. And then like by like the 30th one on this trip, I was like, please, like this, like we just need new material. Okay, but are you sure that they're being sexist and not referencing the 2009 Disney Channel original movie Princess Protection Program? I'm going to say based on the based on the particular <laughs> me, the individual men I saw wearing these shirts I'm going to guess it's sexism. That's my guess but I I would like to extend them some grace and that they just really liked this, you know, Demi Lovato Selena Gomez led classic. Now that I like only merged in the building I'm like maybe I should go back and watch some Selena Gomez <laughs> Disney Channel original movie. No, there were enough different iterations of the design of the princess protection that I'm going to guess that it was like more an off-brand Disney tee than a branded Disney Channel original movie tee. But, oh, you I know, get it. maybe Disney's losing money and they should just put those shirts out there and see what happens. There were just a couple things that sort of surprised me that were references to things that we have covered on this show. So Humphrey the Bear I did not expect to see, but I actually now am the proud owner of a brand new pair of socks from Disney's Wilderness Lodge Hotel that have Donald, Goofy, and Humphrey the Bear on them. Excellent. And I, I saw them and I was like, look, if they're going to put Humphrey, the, Humphrey on socks, I have to buy them because now I know who that is, which I would not have known before doing this podcast. So that was fun. And then the Storybook Circus area of Magic Kingdom actually has a ton of references to stuff that we've covered. They have these big like circus posters up. So there's one for Humphrey the Bear. There's one for Clara Cluck, who I think we mentioned during one of our shorts episodes. Uh, there's a reference to Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. There's a reference to like Melody Time. Like there's a, there's just a bunch of very small, like I would say like Easter egg level references that if you didn't know what it was, you're, you're not even going to think twice about it. There's also a Willie the Whale poster uh, in the line for Mickey's PhilharMagic, which is a ma- uh, music-based, I mean, it, it's like a, a video, like a movie, a 3D movie. But like the idea of it is that you're going into a concert hall to watch Mickey conduct the orchestra. 
you know, in it, Donald steals the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat and like ends up traveling through some of like Disney's greatest hits in terms of like Ariel seeing like part of your world and he's like floating through the scene or whatever. There's a part from Fantasia that that's really fun. And then there was also a model of Grandma's Cabin from So Dear to My Heart in the uh, exhibit. I think it's Walt Disney One Man's Dream, which like mm-hmm. there's there's a movie at the end that I've I've seen before, but I just kind of walked through the exhibit because they have models of like Disneyland and you know there's a early version of the Abraham Lincoln robot from Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln and things like that. But I was very surprised that there was a So Dear to My Heart uh, scale model of of Grandma's Cabin. Supposedly built by Walt Disney. We're going to talk about that a lot, actually. That was the Disneylandia exhibit that uh, was Walt's pet project before he got into fully wanting to make the parks. Oh, so I actually did not know that. So there you go. There's uh, the more you know. So, so that's that's my overall thoughts from my trip to Disney World and immersing myself in in the world for for a bunch of days i i really like the theme parks uh, there's other stuff that we'll eventually talk about like we went through the swiss robinson family treehouse or swiss family mm-hmm. robinson treehouse words have correct orders to them <laughs> thankfully there's no reference to the rock on the jungle cruise ride jack sparrow is still in pirates of the caribbean it's it's interesting to see what things from movies have have and have not filtered into the park but it, it really was like halfway through the trip where i'm like they're not mentioning any of these live action remakes whatsoever like they mm-hmm. are not part of the canon so um you know like i said just some just, just some observations i had from being down there i have one question for you and it's gonna sound like a joke but it, it's actually kind of serious so we talked about like the princesses have their scales of like who's classic and who's you know maybe on their way who isn't I I joked about, you know, the Princess Protection Program, but I I will argue that there is one Disney Channel original movie that has become a Disney classic, so much so that the Disney 100 vinyl, which otherwise is basically all songs from the movies and then the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse song, it does include We're All In This Together from High School Musical. So... Is the High School Musical franchise represented in Disney World? Not that I'm aware of, but it's very possible I could have missed something because I've not seen any of the High School Musical movies. Scandal. That That is definitely going to be a bonus episode because they may have been t- like direct-to-TV movies, but they were so influential to like the 2000s era Disney. I think the third one actually was a theatrical release which means i will watch the first two in order to cover the third one because why would i just jump into the third part of a a franchise there was one disney channel original movie franchise that was represented that i saw which is at the halloween party there was a uh zombies and cheerleaders dance party Mm. okay yeah which i think is i i just did like a quick google that's from 2018 so it's a, a little bit more more recent Mm -hmm. but during the halloween party they had a whole stage show with what looked to me like zombies and cheerleaders you know dancing to to music yeah so that's actually a trilogy i haven't watched it yet but i'm actually planning on watching it in the next week because it's halloweeny 
So I think the most recent movie either came out this year or last year. So the Zombies franchise is probably the most recent, like, decom hit. Although it hasn't been, you know, as huge as some of the others. But that's definitely interesting to hear that that was represented there. Yeah, and, and like I said, I think with it being relatively recent and then it being Halloween adjacent, the, the Halloween party is fun because there, there was also like a Disney Junior like dance party that was indoors. And whenever we walked by, like, it looked like a rave for toddlers. I love it. Like, it was like different color flashing lights. And then like, you know, sometimes the characters would be on the stage, but then we walked by later and they were like out in the crowd dancing with the little kids. It was very cute. But just like from the outside, when you couldn't hear the music and all you could just see were like kids a mix between running around and attempting to move with the music. Like it really just looked like a, a preschool rave. It was, it was great. And then, you know, they had the zombie show and then the big, the big thing that, you know, they have a parade, which mostly has the villains and there's like a haunted mansion float and there's a pirates of the Caribbean float. And then there's a big stage show that they do in front of Cinderella castle. That is uh, the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus, you know, coming back one more time on Halloween night and then trying to recruit a bunch of villains to their cause. Uh, Mr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog, Oogie Dr. Boogie, Facilier. Dr. Facilier, thank you. Oogie Boogie at one point, the evil queen from Snow White, Maleficent, and uh, Captain Hook, which is, an, oh, and Cruella DeVille. And, uh, oh, and Lady Tremaine, I think was, was the, the, full, the full lineup there. Very interesting lineup of villains from, again, across multiple eras. I am going to be curious, and every time we bring up the villains, I think about this. At some point, we'll have to talk about the Descendants series, which is also Disney Channel original movies. But those are about the children of Disney heroes and villains. And their, like, big lineup is... So there's Mal, the daughter of Maleficent. Evie, the daughter of the evil queen, Carlos, who is Cruella Deville's son, and then Jay, who is Jafar's son. So that's who they kind of picked as their four most iconic villains. And of course, it's it's only the human or mostly human characters. They don't include like the Lion King. Right. But it'll be interesting to see kind of what villains and what heroes end up making their way into this like wider Disney web yeah and like i said it's it's really it's really been interesting thinking about this in a new way and thinking about again during the hundredth because i was actually in the park on the actual hundredth day and it it's been interesting to see how disney is not reframing but like the things that they're pulling out from their history and the things that they keep prominent and the things that they think will continue to to resonate with people and as we as we wrap up this episode one of the things that we're going to talk about next week is the Once Upon a Studio short that just came out on Disney Plus, which is a very, I think it's like nine minutes. Mm-hmm. That is just a, a celebration of all the characters from the animated films. Yeah, I think that, and this was intentional in some ways, but the point of our podcast, as well as Disney 100 being this year, there's a lot of points for us to talk about, you know, Disney as a company and where it's come now, 
what lasts and uh, what, like Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue, is largely forgotten. Next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we're going to be swinging back to our true life adventures by visiting the Vanishing Prairie. And that will be wrapping up our third season. So we'll be doing the Vanishing Prairie, doing that short, and then, of course, doing our season wrap-up, although I think we talked about a lot of it today. Just because there's really those three tracks going on in season three. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. For those of you who are not on our social media, we have done a couple of giveaways. We've got some more coming in the future. So definitely make sure that you are checking our social media because we've got lots of cool Disney stuff to give away. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and for giving Ryan the chance to go to Disney. Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song and our editor, Tessa Suela.